morning, everyone. And if you went for that song, you're now wrecked. Uh, So we're not going to stand for the public reading of God's word as we usually do. But if you have a Bible, please turn to uh, John chapter 4. I think it's page uh, 1066 in the Bibles in the pews, where we're going to read the story of an unnamed woman's encounter with Jesus at a well. So John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was uh, gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Enough, in fact, it was not, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And then just jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans came from that town and believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Two weeks ago, Nigel looked at John chapter 3 and the meeting that took place between a deeply religious, good-living, highly respected Jewish man. This morning and a chapter later, 
we find Jesus in conversation with an apparently irreligious, loose-living, morally suspect Samaritan woman. The contrast is striking. These two people couldn't have been any more different. Humanly speaking, they were poles apart. Different religion, different background, different upbringing, different chosen lifestyle, different gender. But the one thing they had in common was a close encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus met them exactly where they were. And he transformed their lives. And one of these people came deliberately seeking answers. The other bumped into him. Totally unexpectedly. But both engaged with Jesus. And they discovered new aspects of life that actually changed their stories forever. And in many ways, irrespective of where we are this morning. And we have been reflecting already a little on where we are. But irrespective of where you are this morning and how you might describe yourself, the critical, the life-defining issue is have you met Jesus? And have you had your life transformed by him? And only you can answer that. Let's look at the story. Jesus is on his way, it says, from Judea back to Galilee. And according to verse 4, it says he has to go through Samaria. The interesting thing is that's not entirely right. Because although any sat-nav would have selected that route, virtually every Jewish traveler making that particular journey would have opted for the indirect, longer route in order to avoid having to go through Samaria. Because as it says in the text, Jews and Samaritans didn't get on. They shared a mutual hostility, and so they sidestepped each other. And Jesus who was a Jew, and therefore he would have known all the issues, he saw beyond culture and tradition, as Jesus always does. There was no such thing as a no-go area for Jesus. We have lots of them. For Jesus, there were none. And the idea of avoiding certain people, people who were different Well, that was just an alien concept to Emmanuel, God with people. And the reason Jesus had to go through Samaria was more to do with an inner conviction. It was more wrapped up in his mission in life because he came, as we all know, he came to seek and to save lost people. He came to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. That was his calling, and he was clear about that. And that purpose in life profoundly influenced the choices he made, the decisions that he took. He knew what he was about, and therefore social norms, social conventions, human expectations, they were all secondary. What really mattered to Jesus was his God-given mandate, not man made prejudices and opinions. And the interesting thing is that before Jesus left planet Earth, he gave us, his church, a very explicit mandate. He commissioned every single one of us who claims to live in God. He commissioned us to go into all the world, to go to all people groups and make disciples. And therefore, there are no no no-go areas. 
There are no people we should ever avoid, even though, and let's be honest, we face the real temptation often to just take the easy route and avoid the hassle. I'm actually not sure we have that option as people who claim to live in God and so therefore must walk as Christ walked. Are there no go areas in your context? Are there people you avoid? Jesus had to go through Samaria. But as verse 7 begins, we discover why. But before you even get there, look again at verse 6. It says, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And you know, here we have a powerful glimpse into the humanity of Jesus. Jesus needed a breather. He needed to sit down. He needed to take a break. And as he sat there doing nothing, everything happened. It's a really interesting thought. As he sat there doing nothing, everything happened. From a place of rest, he was able to work more effectively in the lives of others. And it's a definite echo of our recent Sunday evening series, Slow Down, You're Moving Too Fast. In fact, as we said last Sunday night, we were actually created to work from rest. God made human beings on the sixth day, but the first thing that Adam and Eve did on their first full day alive on planet Earth on the seventh day was what? Rest. It's fascinating. And then it was from that launch pad, it was from that place of rest that people then began to work. That's the way God designed it. We've been designed to work from rest. And that remains the God-ordained rhythm of life. And so it's no wonder that whenever, and we said this last Sunday night, and some of you were here, but it's no wonder whenever we get this round the wrong way, whenever we don't prioritize rest, whenever we don't prioritize Sabbath, what happens is we inevitably hit problems. Whenever we rest from work, we've got it all around the wrong way. You work most effectively from a place of rest. And yet there's some of us are killing ourselves and resting from work. Jesus is recharging his batteries whenever verse 7 says, a Samaritan woman approaches and then Jesus speaks to her. He initiates the conversation. Now, irrespective of what Jesus said, the very fact that he said anything was shocking because as verse 9 makes clear, their differences, their gender differences, social differences, religious differences, they normally prevented, in fact, they ruled out any serious dialogue. The very fact that a man, a Jewish man and a rabbi, as chapter 3 has told us Jesus is, the very fact that a male Jewish rabbi chooses to speak to a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman was radical and revolutionary. If you just glance down to verse 27, which we didn't read, you discover that whenever the disciples come back from being in the town buying food, they can't believe what Jesus is doing. They're so surprised that he's talking to a woman. And to illustrate the prejudice and the depth of feeling that apparently existed in that culture, let me give you a couple of uh, rabbinic sayings from that time. The first is this. One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife because of the gossip of men. That's strong advice that was doing the rounds at the time. But Jesus never did worry too much about what other people, particularly religious people, thought of him. 
whenever, as far as he was concerned, there were deeper issues at stake, like their souls and their eternal destinies. And I think it's also fair to say that the reputation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in certain quarters was actually shot through. Because as Matthew says, this is how Jesus was described. A glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was his reputation. None of those terms were meant to be complimentary, but throughout his life, Jesus was willing to risk his reputation in order to offer life and life to the full. Jesus met with, spent time with, and uh, talked to people, all sorts of people. But the result, fingers were pointed, rumors were spread, and his character was called into question. And that must have hurt Jesus. And it must have hurt the people who really knew Jesus. But for Jesus, sharing the love and gift of God with people mattered far more than misguided and twisted opinions. Jesus placed his reputation on the line in order to engage with people who needed transformation, who needed to be born again, to borrow his phrase from John chapter 3. And if we're going to be salt and light, if we are going to be his witnesses in this place, in this city, in this province, and to the ends of the world, then we're probably going to tread on a few toes, raise a few eyebrows, and maybe even end up like Jesus, being totally misunderstood. The problem is that for most of us, self-included, we care far too much about what other people think about us. So hung up on the opinions of others, particularly the opinions of other religious people. The second rabbinic saying was this, it is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. And so simply by opening his mouth, simply by starting a conversation, Jesus was challenging the comfort zones of everybody who was going to be involved in this situation, none more so than the woman herself. She is genuinely surprised that a Jewish man has even acknowledged her existence. But he has. And so this dialogue begins. Now, Jesus starts, it says, by by asking for a drink. And considering they both find themselves at a well, that's a non-threatening and safe subject to talk about. But after an initial somewhat surprised response from the woman, Jesus then takes the conversation to a whole new level. And he introduces a couple of exciting ideas to this woman. The gift of God and living water. But what are they? Well, in terms of the gift, we do need to backtrack to John 3.16, where we find the answer in the best-known verse in the Bible. God loved And as a result of God's love, God gave the most incredible gift, his only son. And if only this woman knew who it was she was talking to, then she would have been the one to ask for a drink is what Jesus implies. And in our conversations and in our relationships with people, there is nothing more important than offering them the gift of God, of introducing them to Jesus and helping them to discover who he really is. You see, if she had known, and if only people today could know who Jesus really was, then everything would be very different. 
The second exciting idea is this, this idea of living water. You see, Jesus sees beyond physical thirst to soul thirst. And so he, he offers her this different type of water that he says, listen, it won't quench your thirst temporarily. In fact, if you drink this, you'll never thirst again. And her head must have been spinning at this point. Is this legal? Surely the idea of a water to drink that meant you would never thirst again was bizarre. Try to put yourself in this woman's shoes at this moment. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He goes on to say that this unique water, if drunk, will actually become in her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What must that have meant to that woman? Have a Bible. Flick over to John 7. Because in John 7, Jesus says something like this again. Verse 35. He says, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. But what we discover here is that John in chapter 7 goes on to explain, look at verse 39, that by this he meant the Spirit. All right. So living waters, this means the Holy Spirit, which for us is really helpful to discover. But here in Samaria, at this well, with this woman, at this time, Jesus gives no further explanation of what he means. So the promise of living water flowing from within her, welling up, well, it just remained a teasing, cryptic, puzzling concept. But although she must have been struggling to process what this man was talking about, what exactly is he offering me? The one thing we can be sure about is she wants more of it. She's intrigued, she's fascinated, and therefore she places an order. She says, sir, give me some of that thirst-quenching water so that I won't have to keep trekking here to this well to draw more water. Now, as the story unfolds, Jesus suddenly, and and this is one of the brilliant things that Jesus does, but Jesus suddenly and very dramatically changes the topic of conversation, or so it seems, and he turns around and he says, right, go get your husband. Now, if there was one area of life that this woman did not want to talk about, it was her love life. You see, in an attempt to satisfy her soul thirst, she had gone from one human relationship to another never quite finding what she was looking for. Always hoping that the next relationship might provide the love and the acceptance that she she so desperately craved. And it didn't. And so the search continued. And Jesus says, you know, you're right when you say you've no husband. And in some ways I'm sure she thought, well, that's a relief. But then he goes on to say, the fact is you've had five. And the man you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is quite true. And you see, as ever and as always, Jesus speaks into life at a very deep and a very personal level. And he uncovers and he exposes the area of life where this woman has really struggled. And Jesus saw beyond the surface. And Jesus didn't do superficial for very long. He got really to the heart of the issue, which is always an issue of the heart. And he could see her soul thirst and her desire for love and her desire for acceptance. He identified what was really going on in her life and he knew here is a woman who just needs new life. Here is a woman who needs to discover eternal 
life. And therefore, what Jesus was offering her was living water instead of the stale, stagnant stuff that she was living off. And every human being experiences soul thirst. Our hearts are restless. And only the living water offered and provided by Jesus can honestly satisfy it. And we may attempt, and lots of people do, we may attempt to quench our soul thirst via any number of different ways, but there's only one source of living water that ensures you're never going to thirst again, and that's Jesus. I know that's not particularly popular teaching. For many people, that's just a bizarre idea. See, Jesus wasn't afraid to delve into what are maybe sensitive, difficult issues in a person's life. There's no point did Jesus ever back away from talking to someone about what really mattered. But the one thing that just intrigues me about this encounter is that at no point does Jesus condemn or judge her. He consistently treats her with courtesy, dignity, and respect. His warmth and his openness to her are tangible, and so as a result of that, the conversation continues. And surely there are lessons for all of us there as we engage with people. Don't duck the difficult issues of life. Talk about soul thirst, but do it with dignity and respect and openness and with integrity and warmth. By now it's, I'm nearly done, by now it's increasingly apparent to this woman that Jesus is different. And so she turns around and says, listen, I can see you're a prophet. And her eyes are opening and her heart's beginning to soften and her appetite for God's maybe even intensifying. But where does she go from here to engage with God? Her religious background has taught her that worship takes place on this mountain, on Mount Gerizim. Whereas according to Jewish tradition, well, worship happens in a place in Jerusalem. So who's right? Now, the answer Jesus gave here must have sent shockwaves through people's belief system. It would have sounded like complete heresy. Because according to Jesus, the time was coming. And in fact, according to verse 23, he says, it's now come. So it's not just come and it's come. Whenever true worshippers, and that's a really interesting phrase and one I just want to touch on in a moment. Whenever true worshippers will no longer head for a specific location. But we'd worship the Father where? In spirit or in the spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? Well, before I offer you a th- few thoughts, I think it's worth pointing out that it's not just worship that God seeks. It's worshipers, people. Almighty God longs for relationship with messed up, flawed human beings. I don't fully understand that. It's a mind-blowing concept, says Bono, that the God who created the universe might be looking for a real relationship with people. God isn't just looking for worship. He's looking for true worshippers. And although your CV mightn't read that impressively, you've had five husbands and a current live-in lover, God still seeks relationship. God still desires your worship. And the quality of worship that he longs for, the worship that is acceptable to him, is worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, it needs to come from here. 
It needs to come from our innermost being. It needs to be a sincere expression of our hearts. These are one of the, some of the most chilling words I think that Jesus ever said. And he was echoing something said previously. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Do you know if your heart isn't in it, you're wasting your time. We can externalize our worship. We can externalize our worship for anyone else. We can say the right stuff. We can sing the right words. We can simply go through the, through the motions. And I hope that's not what we've been doing this morning, for example. But we can't hide our internal lives from Almighty God. God seeks true worshipers. Those who express inside-out worship. And inside-out worship. Worship that comes from here is in spirit and in truth. And so the woman then tells Jesus, listen, the Messiah, who's the Christ, he's going to come and he's going to explain all this to us. And at that point, Jesus confirms, you're looking at him. And she's not totally convinced. I think this is really, she's not totally convinced by, even by now. But nevertheless, she runs back into town and she says to everyone else, listen, come and see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Not sure. Could this be the Messiah? And either based on what she said or because of who said it, people make their way out to the well. They make their way towards this man. And then finally, as a result of two things, many Samaritans believe. The first was the woman's testimony, according to verse 39. And the second was because of Jesus' words, verse 41. You see, our story, his words, lives changed. We should never underestimate the power of our story. This woman had encountered Jesus. And she just went and told others about it. And it impacted their lives. And for those of us who are Christians, we each have a story to tell. A story to tell of our encounter or our encounters with Jesus. And we should never undervalue or underestimate or minimize the potential effect of telling your story has on your family and friends. It's very hard, in a sense, to argue with your story. But secondly, it's whenever people hear and engage with the words of Jesus that their lives are changed. And so Simon Peter said on one occasion, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Time is gone. But this, and that clock stopped. Time is gone. But this is a great story. And it's just packed with so much content. And I hope I have drawn uh, attention to a number of issues for you to take away and consider even further. But as we finish this series, our hope and our prayer is this, that each person here will have or will have had a close encounter with Jesus. That the living water that he offers is flowing through you, in you, welling up inside of you right now. Because that's what Jesus offers. And that each of us, each of us would be discovered by the Father to be true worshippers.